You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Merry Christmas to you. I know we're gearing up on Christmas, and uh, I'm preaching on Revelation, but uh, we'll have uh, our Christmas story, of course, on Christmas Eve and uh, next week as well. So, while we are moving through Revelation, today we're going to be moving through Revelation 4, and Revelation 4 is a very powerful image in the Bible. It's one of those images that have people, like, just trying to comprehend, just try to be in that moment. Some of the greatest worship songs that we know come from Revelation, right? Some of them as simple as just called Revelation Song. (laughs) Uh, Very creative with the song title right there. Uh, But uh, all kinds of songs have been inspired from this. I remember um, one of the times this passage really gripped me. I was at IYC, International Youth Conference, for... Uh, the Free Methodist do- denomination, just all the uh, youth groups would try to gather together. So we're in Colorado, and while we're there, Francis Chan gets up to speak. This was before anyone actually really knew who Francis Chan was. Is anyone else at this event? Casey? Okay. Me and Casey. We didn't know each other yet, but we were both there. Who? Oh, yeah, Jared. I knew Jared. I was. We were in the bus together. Good times. Yeah, so... So we're here listening to Francis Chan speak, and he gets into Revelation. And it was one of those messages where it doesn't matter if you've been saved your whole life or not. Like, you're all going to get resaved that night. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, well, that was one of those nights. Just everybody could feel the intensity of just trying to put yourself in the throne room with God. It was one of those moments that would just, like, bring you to your knees. And I'm not Francis Chan, so maybe I won't have that effect on you tonight. But uh, I do want to present this in another light that maybe it doesn't always get talked about in. Because this is also the scene where, like, you're like, John, you're either having a crazy, crazy vision or coming off an acid trip. I don't really know, right? Like, it's just kind of bizarre the things you're saying, people with foreheads and all these other kind of things. I don't know what to do all, with all this. What exactly is going on? Well, that's how most of us feel when we're meeting this passage. And that's fine because to some extent we're supposed to feel like this is just too much. I don't know what to do with it. But if we're paying close attention to our Bibles and to kind of the research on Revelation and Revelation in its own context, you'll actually find that a lot of what's being said in Revelation 4 is understandable. So I'm going to read it to you at the end, and then we're going to spend some time in worship because that's what this passage should motivate us to. But before we get there, I want to introduce you to the main characters of this passage and paint the scene for you a little bit. So if you don't know Revelation 4, this is where John has a vision of a door open in heaven. He goes into heaven, and there he's in God's throne room. And God's throne is right there. But then there's all these other curious things around the room. One of the things is the 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones dressed in white with crowns on their heads. A lot of times we don't know what to make of this because why are there other thrones in God's throne room? It should just be him, right? It should. And it still is because he's the one with like the mega throne. He's the one who, who is God and all these other things are not. 
But at the same time, there's some kind of reigning going on here, implied by thrones and crowns. 24 elders in this room. What on earth is going on here? I don't know if anybody else has spent a lot of time in Revelation, but the number 24 comes up at the end of Revelation. Does anybody know what that number represents that time? What was it? Hours in the day, that would be uh, the easy thing to jump to because that's the 24 we're used to. But if you split 24 in half, you get 12. Yeah, so, yeah, you're already headed straight there. So, yeah, 12 tribes, 12 disciples. So at the end of Revelation, there's a new Jerusalem that's made and everybody's welcome into the new Jerusalem, but kind of your ticket in is that this place has sort of been built on the work of 12 tribes, which is the 12 tribes of Israel. If you were born as an Israelite with genetic blood of any of these tribes, you were a God follower. Now, if you're outside of that, you could still get into Israel by kind of like being adopted in and choosing to follow Yahweh over your gods and turning away from your gods. But typically you were born into Israel and you followed God that way. That didn't mean that you were into heaven simply because of the way you were born. It meant that you were elect from birth, right? You were chosen. You were a chosen race. Israel was God's chosen race. You are born into my town. You're born under me. Now choose to follow me. So throughout the Old Testament, there are 12 tribes, 12 kind of ways to be admitted into God's, uh, into God's kingdom. In the New Testament, God's like, okay, now I'm raising up 12 disciples and their intent is specifically to go out into the rest of the world and invite people in. So when you see the New Jerusalem having 24 elders in God's throne room, you have to recognize like this, there's lots of different kind of ideas and symbols people put forth. But 24 is already used in Revelation as 12 tribes and 12 disciples. So here you have them reigning with God. And it already makes sense with what uh, uh, Jesus has told uh, his disciples in Matthew. If you went to Matthew 19, 28, you would find this verse. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So this isn't even like new with Revelation. Jesus already told his disciples in the new world, you guys get thrones. Now, the reason this weirds us out, the reason we're uncomfortable here is because there's human beings carrying some kind of authority and power in God's throne room. It's like this doesn't make sense to us. But if you pay attention to the picture that the Bible paints of the Christian, like this is the most powerful human being in the universe because they have the Holy Spirit because they're following God. In Corinthians, Paul's got a bunch of people in his church bickering with one another and wanting to like sue one another, file lawsuits against one another. And Paul comes in, he's like, why are you taking this to the pagans? Why are you like filing lawsuits Outside of the church. Do you guys not know who you are? One day, when it comes to your judgment abilities, when it comes to your ability to make decisions, one day, Paul says, you Christians will judge angels. So deal with this in the church. 
Though I think Paul's real intent is like, you guys shouldn't be fighting about this stuff in the first place. <laughs> but if you're going to fight about it, let the church decide. They're the ones with the real power and authority anyways. Paul understood that there is a space for Christians in the end to rule with God. That Jesus extends his rule throughout the Gospels and throughout Revelation to those that follow him. So as crazy as it sounds that there might be human beings granted some kind of authority or throne in heaven... Believe it or not, that is a picture the Bible paints of a Christian. They are no little deal. It seems that way now because our lives are all about service. Our lives are all about helping one another, loving one another, forgiving those who hurt us, turning the other cheek when we're slapped. Like that all seems like very, like we're supposed to be small and insignificant. And that is the way of the Christian, both now and later. But... Jesus shows us in the upside down world of heaven, really heaven should be the right side up. We're the upside down. Uh, But in the right side up world of heaven, being this small kind of Christian is really a huge deal that we reign on with Christ. So 24 elders in the throne room. These are human beings who represent those who can come into heaven because of their judgment based on if they're uh, coming after God, following after God with them. Next up, we've got seven spirits of God. I won't spend a lot of time here because we've already talked about this. I know that it's very easy when you look at a lot of different readings on Revelation. Whenever the seven spirits of God are mentioned, it's always said like this is the seven parts of the Holy Spirit. I still don't really get that. That seems like a weird thing for John to say when he's trying to say that the Holy Spirit and God are one, not like eight. But... Um, I think, again, the logic here is John is referring to the seven archangels, which may not be in your Bible, but are well known in apocalyptic literature. And John's writing an apocalypse. So he's mentioning the seven angels that everyone knows about. And these angels are no little deal. Okay, these ones would freak you out if you saw them. This is my guess anyways, because when messenger angels show up to human beings, people freak out. That's the mailman of the spiritual world, right? I have a message for you. Get away from me, right? These guys are the real deal. The only one we really know of in the actual Bible is Michael. And Michael is compared to all of the other spiritual beings that reign over countries. So you've got a prince of Persia. You've got a prince of Greece. But then... uh, Daniel is told, but you, you've got the Prince Michael over you. So in other words, like the same kind of power and authority that these other massive country spiritual beings have, Michael is the same in some way. That's the comparison. Michael's so strong that in the book of Revelation, he leads a charge against a bunch of fallen angels and kicks Satan out of heaven. Like this guy's a big deal. And as he's pictured in God's throne room, he's this burning flame of fire, seven burning flames of fire. So if you want to even get close to these these archangels, to these seven spirits around God's throne, expect to get burned. Expect to feel the heat on the way towards them. If you're afraid of the mailman, you're going to be afraid of this guy. It's not because he's a bad guy. It's just that kind of awe-inspiring being. We've got the 24 elders. We've got the seven spirits of God. And then we have the four living creatures. These ones are by far the weirdest, right? (laughs) Let me just read for you. 
in Revelation, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and a fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. (laughs) This is where we're like, okay, John, what on earth is going on here? Like, these are strange beings. But here's the deal. This is not the first time these beings have shown up in your Bible. If you would go to Ezekiel 1, you meet these beings in great detail. Here's how they work. In Ezekiel 1, they're they're actually uh, expressed. Their physicality is a little different. In Ezekiel 1, there's not like a lion, a man, an ox, and an eagle. Every one of these beings has four heads. Lion, ox, eagle, Whatever the other one was, I said. <laughs> what? Man. Man. <laughs> right. Humanity. Right. Okay. So they have four heads. And the way that they're described is they're these kind of standing beings with four heads pointing every direction. There's four of them. And they put their two wings up like this while the other two wings basically cover their privates. It says that it covers their feet, but... If you don't know this, feet in uh, biblical language oftentimes is uh, um, euphemism for genitals. You'll read your Bible a little differently next time when you get there. <laughs> uh, but they didn't want to use those words, so they would talk about these angels are covering themselves. But with the other ones, they're holding up, uh, holding up God's throne. So you've got one, one of these sorry beings, these living beings... In the corner, four heads pointing every direction, wings out like this. Next one, like that. And they're in like a a square, right? What they're holding up is God's throne. And this makes sense given the culture that uh, um, Ezekiel lived in, where he's having this vision. Because in Ezekiel's world, everybody knew that all of their gods had these divine chariots around that moved them around. Uh, For example... Surely you've seen a movie or a cartoon of some sorts in which there's those people holding poles, right? And there's a tent in the middle, and the king is kind of sitting inside that tent. Uh, If you haven't seen it, I don't know, you're not cultured enough. Anyways, um, (laughs) just kidding. Uh, But this is like a, a common image. Imagine that in kind of like the divine world. Here are these beings holding up God's throne, and it says that the throne's on wheels, but the spirit's of these living beings are the ones that move the wheels. So it's not like a battery-powered throne or engine-powered. Just the spirits enter the wheels and move it around wherever God wants to go and has total uh, flexibility to move wherever it wants. So people understood in uh, Ezekiel's time, oh, this is a divine throne for your God, Yahweh, for, for Israel. You guys believe in him and this is his throne. Yes, but this throne can move anywhere. If you also look at the culture of that time and you looked at their astrology of the time, you would find a human constellation or star in one direction, eagle in another, ox in another, and uh, lion in another. So the idea is like these four heads are saying like, from the whole edge of the cosmos, no matter where you want to go, God, north, south, east, or west, we can move you in every direction. You just tell us we're your servants. He's not just the God who's located in the temple, as maybe a lot of Israelites think. 
He is the God who is capable of going wherever he wants. Now, what John loves to do is he loves to take a bunch of similar sounding passages, throw them in a blender, and then mix them up for a nice mixed drink of sorts. Uh, passages that complement one another. So these four living beings, they change. They don't have four heads in every direction, but you still know that these are these living beings who Ezekiel later calls cherubim. So these are cherubim. He also takes seraphim, which is also another kind of living being that does the same kind of sort of stuff. But the seraphim are seen above God's throne, praising God in Isaiah. And they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so John takes a bit of Isaiah, spiritual beings around God's throne, praising him. John takes a little bit of Ezekiel, spiritual beings moving God wherever he wants to go. And he throws it all in the blender along with a little bit of Enoch and some other things. And what you come up with are these four living beings just representing like more creatures that we've met throughout the Bible in God's throne room who serve him. And so now we're in the presence of all kinds of stuff from all throughout the Bible. We've got 24 elders, these human beings, these glorious human beings clothed in white, kind of like angels would be. You've got the seven archangels of God, the spirits of God, flames of fire, afraid to touch. And then you've got the four living creatures serving God day and night, moving him wherever he needs to go. They are holding him up. Not that he needs them to. It's just part of the way in which they're serving him. This is all in one spot. And we're left with the feeling of what John's feeling. This feeling of awe. Look at all this stuff going around me. Look at all these most powerful beings in the Bible all in one place. And then it's interesting. The way that John sets up this room. As he says that this is happening in front of a sea of glass. Like crystal. Ezekiel 1, where John is already referencing all throughout this passage. Ezekiel 1 talks about an expanse like crystal. To understand this, you need to understand the world that the Bible authors lived in. Okay, Our world today, we're a planet spinning around and also revolving around the sun. And the sun is revolving around the Milky Way galaxy. And you can probably follow this out for quite some time. Two trillion galaxies out there floating through space. When we think of like our place in the universe, that's normal to us. That is not whatsoever even close <laughs> to the way the Bible authors thought. Uh, I'll, I'll do it this way. Snow globe. This is more the way that your Bible understood the world to be. There's people on land, and if you go in any direction from here, eventually you hit water. But otherwise, land is flat. We're not on a sphere rotating around anything. Land is flat, and water is on all sides eventually. Maybe there's more land beyond that, but eventually you more or less hit the edge of the earth because it ends. On top of that, they believed that there was something called an expanse, or sometimes your Bible say a firmament, an expanse that was covering everything in the heavens. The stars, the moon, the sun are all in this part, this glass part. It's this translucent 
The Bible calls it sapphire kind of protection around the world. Now, the reason this is right in Genesis, right? Uh, God separated the waters on the earth from the waters in the sky by putting an expanse in between them. So when it rains in their mind, God has opened a window in this glass part because there's water all above this glass part. So like a uh, story of Noah. If you read that at the end of Noah, it says, then uh, God shut the windows, the flood windows. So the expanse where all this water was above it, God shut it and the water stopped. Right here, we're coming across this passage telling us that God is right where the Bible is always expecting him to be. He is in the heaven of heavens, that place above the expanse, that place above the crystal sea. All the way at the top where nothing can be higher than him. This is the throne room that John is standing in, perhaps looking out at the sea of glass, the sea of crystal, seeing the expanse, seeing the land below. You see the Bible actually paint really weird pictures of this. Like most of us, if you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with the story of Moses looking at God's back. But a lot of people aren't familiar with the story in Exodus 24 where Moses and a bunch of elders saw God's feet. They go up on a mountain, so they're closer to the expanse. And they look up, and God's feet <laughs> are just standing on this shield of the earth right above them. And right there, they go ahead and they have dinner with God. <laughs> See, what we're doing right now, this is biblical, eating with one another. It'd be great if we looked up and saw God's feet, but I think most of us would be weirded out by that. But nonetheless, imagine that. In Exodus 24, Israel looks up and sees God's feet. Probably huge, right? Because you wouldn't just see tiny feet up there. It's catching their attention. And now John is standing in the throne room where God's feet are, but he's on the other side of the crystal sea, of the expanse of the firmament, looking down. This is perhaps a scene that John is painting for us. The band can come up, and as they do, I'm going to read to you Revelation 4. You've just met some of the most powerful spiritual beings in the Bible, and now you are about to watch every one of them fall over and worship God. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 
From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast the crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. In this passage, we see all beings that were created by God because He is the only Creator. He is the one and only God. But all the beings in this picture are the ones who are chasing after God, who are following Him. They're the ones who represent some of the highest authority some of the strongest works of God. Yet every one of them is finding themselves praising God, worshiping God, falling to their knees. How often we can come to church and try to get through the music and hope it ends soon and move on to the things that we think really matters. Yeah, when we're given a real glimpse of heaven, some of the things that we're shown is like what, what really matters is putting ourselves on the floor, saying, it's all about you, God. Press into worship for a little bit. This is a time to not just sing a bunch of words on a screen, but really find yourself in God's presence. Use the vision, the, the picture that John has already painted for you. Live in that space. See what God wants to speak to you. verse that comes to my mind in 
moments like this is what is man that you are mindful of him? Just tiny little ants. Yet not only would you put someone like us on thrones and grant us decisions to rule along with you, to replace the fallen spiritual beings of heaven with ourselves, but you would love us even when we're sinning against you. you like as we do it, but would you start by standing? I just encourage you to give your heart in this time. If any of our prayer teams available, they'll be in the back corner, and you can go and ask them for whatever you'd like. I gaze into your courtroom I see you sitting there A million angels singing loudly The love that they all share And what a beautiful king I see you across the crystal sea Sounds of thunder and lightning brings Glory to you Because of your will, you put us here, and out of our will, we fill your ears with songs of praise, and we make it clear that you are the God whom we all fear. We join with the angels, lift our voices to the sky, you can hear our praises. Son of God, be lifted, lifted high, and hallelujah, and we lift you up. 
Son of God, be lifted, lifted high and high.